Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, dozens of groups and state and local officials have just sent an open letter to Congress. The $150 billion designated for state, local, and tribal governments as relief from the COVID-19 crisis is nowhere near what those governments will need. And not just that, but forcing them to cut budgets just as they need to be spending more is going to drive a cycle that only hurts more those already hurting. We'll talk about what could be done instead with Naomi Walker, director of the Economic Analysis and Research Network, working out of the Economic Policy Institute, who spearheaded the letter. Also on the show, last October, USA Today ran a story headlined, With Raging Fires, High Winds, and Blackouts, California is Living a Disaster Movie. Is this the new normal? Little did they know. The distress and dystopia, and the fear of media's normalization of it, led us to questions then that we hold on to today. What could journalism be doing, not just to give context to factors behind the crisis, but to illuminate different ways forward that are so obviously called for? We talked last November with Johanna Bozua, co-manager of the Climate and Energy Program at the Democracy Collaborative. We'll hear part of that conversation today. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at some recent press. You may have heard CNN and others using terms like propaganda, meltdown, and rant to describe Donald Trump's propagandistic ranting meltdowns, also known as press briefings. That's a welcome development. It took them long enough to get there and seemed to require direct attacks on them personally, but we'll take it. What we should not take, though, is a press corps prepared to issue bold and incisive criticism of a raging sociopath. But when it comes to serious alternatives, actual systemic change, well, let's not get carried away. Workers devastated by the loss of their job and their health care at once? That's just terrible. Medicare for all? Hmm, you know, that's pretty radical. Maybe an op-ed. Nurses, farm workers, and meat packers suffering on the front line, deeply deserving of attention and sympathy. A livable, enforceable minimum wage that keeps pace with productivity? Well, you know, there are some very smart people who think that's a bad idea. Restructuring the economy so disasters like COVID don't further immiserate those already struggling while scoring billionaires still more billions? What are you, a socialist? Criticism of Trump, no matter how smart or funny, is no substitute for the radical undoing of the systems that made his presidency possible, the levers he was and is able to pull. That work involves listening to the people who are virtually never on the guest list and exploring ideas corporate media find unfit to print. On the pandemic itself, there's a lot of talk these days about the coronavirus peak, As coronavirus cases near 2 million, countries try to look beyond peak, was a New York Times headline. Other outlets are speculating about when each state will peak in fatalities from the pandemic. The idea of a peak gives the comforting impression that there's a corner to be turned and then life can get back to some kind of normal. The worst is over, as New York Governor Andrew Cuomo was recently quoted in the Times. 
As Jim Narikis writes for FAIR.org, predictions of a peak are based on computer modeling, particularly from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Their model produces graphs that tend to suggest a rapid rise and fall in COVID-19 deaths. You can see these graphs on FAIR.org. We certainly hope to see the toll of the coronavirus trailing away dramatically, but it may also be another instance in which media are misleading by paying more attention to computer simulations than to real-world examples. Take Italy, the Western country with the earliest major COVID-19 outbreak. When you look at new cases per day, they've been arriving at a fairly consistent rate of about 3,000 to 6,000 a day for a month now. And this, in turn, has led to a quite steady level of active cases of infection, which helps explain why the number of deaths per day in Italy is falling very gradually, if at all. You see similar plateaus in other Western countries that had early major outbreaks, like Spain and France. And the same pattern can be seen in California, the first and one of the best-controlled outbreaks in the U.S., It's possible that these outbreaks will soon take a turn for the better, and new cases and deaths will indeed fall off sharply. But it's also possible that the response to the coronavirus's lethality and asymptomatic infectiousness, that response being drastic physical separation necessary to prevent a quickly mounting death toll, that means that COVID-19 might not be a normal disease with a steep arrival curve and an equally sudden departure. In other words, there may be no peak, per se. People should absolutely be thinking about how elements of normal life can be resumed most safely if the coronavirus ebbs away. But we also need to think about what we'll do if physical separation is something that needs to be sustained not for weeks, but for months or even until a vaccine is available? How do we keep people fed and housed and cared for if much of the economy isn't functioning? And how do we maintain the economy such that it can be revived when that's safe to do? It's far better to have plans to answer those questions than to cross our fingers and hope we don't have to. Finally, even before the coronavirus made it glaringly obvious, it was clear that Internet access is critical to daily living, which is why many people think it should be a public service, like water or electricity. Now, imagine trying to access telehealth services or file for unemployment or do schoolwork remotely without reliable access. No one should have to. But as the group Free Press reminds us, the cost of broadband is so high and the ISP's policies are so discriminatory that even before the pandemic cost millions of people their paycheck, more than one-fifth of households in the country didn't have home Internet. Just 56% of households making less than $20,000 a year had home broadband, with low-income black and Hispanic households even less likely to have it than their low-income white counterparts. It's not enough to have access, a wire running to your house, without affordability. Free Press is encouraging folks to send a message to Congress that the next stimulus package must provide necessary resources to make sure people can connect and stay connected to broadband and phone services during the pandemic and the economic crisis that comes with it. You can find a letter you can sign on to if you choose at freepress.net. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair.
the absence of competent, much less compassionate, federal coordination and guidance through the economic shock of the COVID-19 crisis is becoming clear. State and local governments are struggling with the combination of new demands and a steep drop in revenue. And remember, unlike the feds, most states have to balance their budgets. That's why more than 180 organizations and state and local elected officials sent an open letter to members of Congress calling for $500 billion in relief for state, local, territorial, and tribal governments, along with other transformative investments. We're joined now by Naomi Walker, director of the Economic Analysis and Research Network, a network of state policy research and advocacy groups coordinated by the Economic Policy Institute, who spearheaded this open letter. She joins us by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Naomi Walker. Thanks so much, Janine. Glad to be here. Well, it's not just the raw fact that the $150 billion that the CARES Act designated for state and local governments is not enough. This open letter underscores that that insufficiency of resources drives decisions that drive decisions that end up pushing real recovery further out of sight. Is that so? That's exactly right. You know, with states and localities facing these shortfalls, and as you mentioned, they're not able to do deficit spending like the federal government can and should. And so they resort to cutting budgets and cutting budgets for programs that are really important, particularly in the midst of a pandemic and economic crisis. Ohio, for instance, just announced that they're going to do 20% across the board budget cut, or at least that's what the governor has proposed. And that has real implications for people and how quickly we can get the economy back on track after the crisis is over. So, you know, these budget cuts clearly are going to fall. We know who they fall on. When someone says austerity, we know who gets hurt by that. And it's, it's the people who are already hurting most now. Exactly. The most vulnerable workers, workers in low-wage jobs, communities of color, women, you know, a lot of the groups that we see negatively impacted by a lot of the policies in place will be certainly bear the brunt of the impact of these budget cuts. Well, beyond the $500 billion, the letter, again, signed by a range of groups, um, Atlanta Jobs with Justice, to the Center for Disability Rights, to Citizen Action Illinois, it urges Congress to adopt a transformative approach to protecting workers and businesses. What does that mean, a transformative approach? I think that this is really an opportunity to think bigger and think uh, in a bolder way than we have before about what it's going to take not just to fill the gaps in our infrastructure that this crisis is so clearly laid bare, but also to think beyond about what we want our economy to look like, what we want our safety net to look like going forward so that, you know, they're able to support an economy that works for everybody, not just the very richest among us. And so, you know, one of the approaches that EPI is calling for, along with uh, a lot of other groups, is that the U.S. should be considering some type of payroll guarantee program, just like United Kingdom, Denmark, and the Netherlands have implemented. And that would allow workers to stay attached to their jobs. The national government in those models pay up to 90 percent of all payroll costs for employers that are impacted by the shutdown. And that really helps create an economic deep freeze that allows everybody just hold tight, you know, 
it holds workers and businesses as harmless as possible while the economy shuts down and people stay home to help stave off the worst of the pandemic. Yeah, it's possible to have a pause and not to have a crash, but framing matters so much here. Keeping ideas like a protected pause off the page or in the margin, I think, is legitimizing these these fake and unnecessary choices that are lethal, you know, that are killing people. But there's a sense that, oh, well, we have to make a trade-off, and we don't have to make that trade-off. We can do something else. Yeah, there are other ways. You're exactly right. It's a false choice that's being set up, and the federal government has the resources that it could really throw down right now and stave off the economic pain that people are already feeling. Um, And if more significant measures aren't taken very soon, you know, are going to be feeling for a very long time. Yeah, pain and, of course, insecurity. Mm -hmm. You know, what's going to come next? But if you mention other countries, other models, you mentioned the UK, Denmark and Netherlands, it's like, avert your eyes. You know, we we can't do that here because it's not American something something freedom. Well, we've seen what the American uh, system has gotten us, and it's uh, it's left people vulnerable and exposed, and it's time to look for other models. Well, what are some of the other things that this letter is encouraging Congress to do? So we think that one of the things that this pandemic has shown us, just like the Great Recession and the state fiscal crisis before that in 2000 has shown us, is that our nation's unemployment insurance system is really not prepared for a crisis of this magnitude. And we think that while Congress took really unprecedented measures to expand unemployment insurance in a way we've just never seen before, and that's fantastic. There's more that needs to be done. And so we want to make sure that the benefits that were included in the CARES Act continue for as long as economic conditions warrant The CARES Act set kind of arbitrary guidelines for when some of this aid would end. Some of the new expansions in the unemployment insurance system end at the end of July. Who knows where we're going to be at the end of July? And so instead of tying it to random dates, we think it really needs to be tied towards to continuing as long as we're in this economic downturn. We also know that unemployment insurance, even though it's vastly expanded who is eligible for the pandemic unemployment assistance, there are still some workers that are going to fall through the cracks, and it's not small numbers. These are significant numbers of workers. And so immigrant workers who were left out of these expansions and new labor market entrants like college students or folks just coming out of college or folks coming out of the criminal justice system who don't have a work history are not able to get this new unemployment insurance right now, and we think that needs to be fixed. And then the last thing is, you know, there's been a ton of media reports talking about how long people are waiting on hold, trying to get through to their state unemployment insurance offices. And while there's been some money for administrative aid included in some of the federal bills, we think that it needs 30 to $40 billion more dollars to make sure that those systems can meet the demand. There are other things about, and you don't have to go through them all, but the uh, direct cash payment that a lot of folks looked again to other countries and said, 
you know, they're getting covered for a long time. We're getting a one-time check, right? you know, which is going to be late because Donald Trump needs to put his name on it. Exactly. But back in reality, you think more needs to be done in terms of direct cash payments. Yeah, for sure. $1,200 one time, just not enough. We need to look at that amount on a monthly basis for the remainder of this crisis. You know, the cash payment was also really restrictive about who's eligible to receive the payment and limited it to folks who have filed tax returns or are citizens. And we think that it should be available to anybody who is making under the income threshold regardless of their tax filing or immigration status. And we know, of course, that folks contribute to the economy. Right. We know that that money will go directly into goods and services, which is presumably what you want to happen. Exactly. It's not like the folks who would be getting this money are like hoarding this away or throwing it under their mattresses. These are folks who need this money. They need to spend it on rent and groceries and health care it will be a big boost to the economy to get money into folks' hands. And then there are points, again, about personal protective equipment and testing and treatment for frontline workers and things to do with worker protections in general. You know, again, we've seen so many stories and heard from so many workers who completely lack the kind of protective equipment that they need. We also know that there's not enough money for testing and treatment. We want to make sure that You know, anybody that gets tested or treated for coronavirus, those uh, expenses should be picked up by the federal government. And as the CDC and the Trump administration talk about getting people back to work in the next few weeks, which is completely misguided, we need to make sure that we're talking about protective equipment and protective gear for everybody, not just the essential frontline workers. Well, with Trump doing his Trump thing, there is a lot of focus on state and local governments. But, you know, and then we see the White House directing state relief in these hyperpartisan ways and states, it feels like scrabbling among themselves for resources. I mean, other governments are going to do what they can, but there really is no substitute for federal level coordination on something like this, is there? Absolutely. This is a clear case of where the federal government has an incredibly vital role to play. And the fact is the Trump administration has really fallen down on the job, not unexpectedly, but still it's tragic to see the consequences of this failure to act and this failure to lead in this moment. And, you know, the nation's governors are doing a tremendous job in many cases trying to make sure that their states uh, equipment that it needs, that they get the resources it needs. But even with that tremendous leadership that we're seeing come out of many governors, it's just not a substitute for federal action. Well, let me just ask you finally, has there been response or what has been the response to the letter? And is there a, a follow-up plan? What, what comes next? I think what's next is we have to continue to put as much pressure as possible on Congress to allocate this $500 billion. There's incredible alignment among the folks who work at the state and local levels. We're hearing the call for $500 billion coming out of the governors, the counties, the League of Cities, you know, and all the advocacy groups that have signed on to this letter. And so, you know, it's clear what needs to be done. And the question is, 
is there going to be enough consensus in Congress to make it happen? What we've been hearing up until now, and the House leadership is pushing for as much aid as possible, but what we're hearing so far is that the numbers being discussed, the state and local aid, are really still not up to the task of what needs to be done. And so there's a tremendous amount of work. So I hope that people are reaching out to their congressional delegations and urging them to move this money to the states and localities as quickly as possible. We've been speaking with Naomi Walker, director of the Economic Analysis and Research Network, EARN, coordinated by the Economic Policy Institute. They're online at epi.org. Naomi Walker, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much, Janine. It was great to be here. Last fall, people were using words like unlivable to describe parts of California where wildfires and power outages were driving new kinds of crisis and exacerbating existing ones. Climate disruption, of course, was at the heart of it, but also a private utility system that isn't and hasn't been incentivized to address it. Johanna Bozua, co-manager of the Climate and Energy Program at the Democracy Collaborative, talked with Counterspin in early November. I asked first about the power outages planned by the utility company Pacific Gas and Electric because they were concerned that power lines might trigger wildfires in high winds as had in fact happened in 2018, killing 85 people. But can shutting off power when conditions could spark fires, which due to climate disruption is going to be an awful lot of times, seriously serve as Plan A? There's a lot of history that's here in terms of PG&E not investing in its grid for so many years and really putting shareholder profits uh, ahead of the infrastructure that we now have, which has created this concept of the new normal. But it also doesn't have to be. I mean, having these power shutoffs come on again and again, Governor Newsom has even said, these are incredibly not surgical. They are doing blanket shutoffs because they're afraid of liability, but they're also not providing the infrastructure that communities need to actually make it through these. So their phone lines are off. You can't get onto their website, and there's only a generator station for every county. And so that's just showing that this is not just them taking precautions. This is them severely mismanaging a situation in which people are losing their power and losing access to maybe life-sustaining medical apparatuses as well. Well, and you point to history. They aren't just any utility that is being forced to deal with climate disruption. There's more that we should know about the role they've played vis-a-vis climate change, isn't there? Oh, yes, definitely. And the Energy and Policy Institute had a really important expose. Uh, We hear a lot about Exxon New and Shell New on the news, uh, but utilities knew too. They were part and parcel to the climate disinformation campaigns that have happened in the past and have sowed disinformation. And PG&E was a part of that as well. So PG&E is not a good actor in this situation. They are the ones that were able to make money off of fossil fuels for so many years and stopping action on climate change for years as well. And now they are paying the price with their own infrastructure that they failed to invest in so that it was ready for the new climate that they had in part given us. 
Well, alternatives are not just possible. They are, as you write, waiting. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the idea of public utilities. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I advocate that PG&E should be transitioned into public ownership because it can eliminate some of those warped incentives that are associated with monopoly investor-owned utilities that operate our energy system. And we can move towards a situation in which a public good is provided by a public service. So by moving to a public institution, we are going to have hopefully a more accountable utility whose shareholders and stockholders are us. It is the people who are living in California uh, and not the shareholders who are hundreds of miles away. You talk a lot about the media. It's been really interesting for me to look at some of the coverage that's been happening around the investors that are circling PG&E right now. They're saying, oh, we'll take it over. These venture capitalists like Paul Singer, who has been in bed with the Koch brothers for years investing in anti-climate sentiments. And we see the same thing with Berkshire Hathaway, which is another major utility company that has been trying to stop distributed solar across the United States, just the type of resiliency we need for California. But there are other options that are on the table right now, and they're in action. San Francisco just put in a bid to municipalize their area so that they could take back the grid, so that they could be in charge of their own destiny. And similarly, San Jose, one of the biggest cities that PG&E provides service to, is saying, actually, you know what we should do? We should create a cooperative utility so that it is beholden to the people of California, and we're taking over PG&E at the statewide level. Well, as we discussed when we talked about public banks on this show with Trinity Tran a few weeks ago, the word public isn't like, you know, pixie dust. It doesn't automatically make things work in a better way, but public utilities would have certain, you know, criteria about being democratized, about being decentralized, about being equitable. It's it's not just a goal, in other words, but a way to get there and, and who is involved in the process. Absolutely. It's not a silver bullet, but it does provide us this opportunity to have more recourse. And the other thing is we're building this thing from scratch, right? Or not from scratch. There is a history of public ownership in the energy sector, but we have the ability to design in to that institution, things like decentralization, things like equity, things like a democratized system, and build upon what we've seen work in the past and also where we've seen public utilities historically fail. This is a huge opportunity for California to create an energy system that's rooted in climate justice, that's rooted in the realities of the changing climate and how they're going to ensure that they actually are creating a resilient California. That was Johanna Bozua speaking with Counterspin in November 2019. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the Media Watch Group FAIR. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on FAIR's website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.